Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Buddy, Senior Research Scholar in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology in Chicago. People in the so-called advanced industrial countries like to think of themselves as modern, rational, and scientifically grounded people. Science and human reason guide public and private life, religion is becoming a thing of the past, and a materialist epistemology remains the best and only way to understand the world and all facets of human experience. Belief in the supernatural or spiritual is seen as restricted to the uneducated and unsophisticated among domestic populations in the rich countries, but especially throughout the so-called global south. It is in these regions, Africa, Asia, and Latin America, that backward ideas and superstitious norms remain as evidence of backwardness and ignorance, according to the conventional wisdom. And yet, 41% of adults in the United States believe in the power of psychics. A third of U.S. Catholics believe in astrology, and 40% of self-described agnostics believe spiritual energy can be found in physical objects. According to one psychic services industry, generates about $2 billion per year just in the United States, paying $1.5 billion in annual wages and having experienced steady growth since the economic recession of 2008. However one reads statistics and the odd mix of beliefs and practices that define our age, one should be wary of easy generalizations about the material and the spiritual, the, no the knowable and the unknowable, and the rational and non-rational. Such issues are of interest to religious and non-religious persons around the world and of special concern to the worldwide network of communities gathered around the life and mission of Jesus of Nazareth. Today we are speaking with Bernhard Judelhoven, a priest in the Society of the Missionaries of Africa. He has lived and worked in Zambia since 1989, has advanced degrees in social anthropology and theology, and combines on-the-ground pastoral work with internationally recognized scholarship. He visited DePaul University in Chicago recently and delivered a lecture in the Works of Mercy series with his focus on comforting the afflicted. The title of Father Udelhoven's talk is Witchcraft and Demons in a World of Plural Beliefs, a Cultural Approach for Helping the Afflicted and Accused. Hello, Father Bernhard, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Michael. Now, in our time, it would seem difficult to find a topic more sensationalized and also more misunderstood than the set of practices and ideas that are lumped together and described as witchcraft. It also seems to mean something that means very different things to people in different places, social locations, and historical eras. How might we best understand what's meant by the term in our time, based on your experience in Zambia and elsewhere? Yeah, you are right to say that witchcraft is a very contested term, and many people understand by it different things. Also in Zambia, it's the same thing. What is witchcraft for one may be legitimate medicine for another person. Maybe I just give an example. In Zambia, our health system doesn't reach every village. Many sicknesses cannot be treated. We can treat uh, malaria very well, worms, the basic things. But with any complications, the health system cannot help people. So people go to healers. We have the so-called traditional healers. Now they are not really traditional in the sense that if they do something always from the past, but uh, they are often very modern healers, uh, always changing and adapting to new circumstances. Eh? But now the healing, their healing, has a very different system than, let's say, the healing in hospital. Now some would call them witch doctors. 
So a healer can be called a witch, so to say, by some, eh? especially by Christians. But people find healing there for conditions which cannot be healed in the ordinary clinics. Or another example you have in Zambia, you find that uh, for many women, it's very difficult to find another husband because men can marry very young women, uh, but a woman cannot marry a much younger man as a husband, you know. So once you are divorced, the husband straight away gets a new wife, but the wife will not find another husband. So there's a lot of pressure on the women to keep the husband and prevent him to be attracted to other women who are seen as a threat. So many women in Zambia, for example, use medicines. Now the term medicine there is meant to prevent their husband to go away. But for the husband it's witchcraft. So for the wife it's medicine, for Protect, the husband it's witchcraft. Protecting so it's, the relationship as yeah, opposed protecting. to... It's a, it's yeah. a protective thing. Um, you may also have people who protect themselves uh, uh, from harm with medicines. For them it's medicine, but maybe a so-called witch finder comes and says, no, this medicine, it caused another child to die. You know, so the boundary between what is medicine and what is witchcraft is very fluid. It seems also, reading, reading your, your published work, that there's several different facets or functions that come under this term. You mentioned healing aspects and matters of, of wellness broadly construed, but what about sort of the diagnostic side of things, talking about divination of spirits and, you know, talking about someone who comes in to assess a situation to find out whether or not someone's personal struggles are in fact evidence of something beyond sort of material causes. Yeah, people in Zambia, they live in a plural world where there are many different ways of making sense out of difficult situations. There's obviously the modern health care system, modern education is there, schools are everywhere, people go through schools. Um, at the same time, you, you don't find often answers to the situation you face. And then the experience people have is also not always taken seriously by the system they go through. And there indeed, uh, people have different choices. So if they have an affliction, for example, it may be a sickness, it may also be misfortune that they don't get a job, they are, remain unemployed, and they see others get a job, they, they write 20, 30, 40 applications, don't get one, you know, and then other thoughts, they come up, maybe my affliction is of a spiritual nature, and so there's a certain discernment going on in people, and they will also adapt themselves to the helping force. If they come, let's say, to a priest, they will come even with the Bible and, and buy, so to say, into the religious or Christian kind of way of making sense out of it. If they go to a healer, they will have a totally different way of making sense. And again, they go to the modern hospital again, they will have another way. Now, the interesting thing is that many people make use of all the ways because they need help. And they don't find it in one one answer, so to say, a, a, alone. Life is faster than the answers which we give in our different compartments. That's a very different way to live and a very different world to inhabit than those in the West where the culture is monochromatic, that there's a, an assumption that 
there's one way of understanding the world and there is one set of stories about cause and effect and, and, and so on. When you talk about living in a plural universe, that, that's, that's very interesting and I'm sure that whether it was in your own experience or, or others, that's very much a, a learned competence. I think it's, it's also a big challenge for people. If you, like in the moment, I live in a very rural setup, very isolated parish, um, nevertheless, in each family, somebody lives in town where you have everything what you have here also available at your, at your, at your, uh, at your fingertips. If you have the money now, people may lack that, you right. know. Now, let's say a girl, for example, we have uh, every girl has to be initiated into married life by her grandmothers. What she learns in the cultural initiation is totally different from what she learns in biology in school. Now, for a girl or a boy to make sense out of this, you know, you have your family, you have school, you have a church. Also, what you get in church doesn't always mix either with, with either culture or the school, you know, and to make sense out of it. Now, you have friends in all aspects. You are always part of your family. You are dependent on your family. You have friends at school. You have friends in the church. But you have very different worldviews. And I don't think that we always need one worldview which we always put together. Maybe also here, very often, our worldview is situational. And that comes out maybe stronger in Zambia where not any one single worldview can answer all your questions. So at sometimes you make use of another worldview. But then uh, a week later when you talk, you, you start even saying, oh, I don't believe in spirits. But at that moment, you do believe in spirits. It can be a very situational thing. Also our Christian commitment, we pastors realize that also very much. On Sundays, people are very much Christian, believe in God and the power of God, you know. But then again, we find that on Monday, it's not the priest who gives the answer, but a traditional healer who gives the answer to their, to their problems. So it can be a very situational way of life. It raises an interesting question about the evolution of Catholic theology and practice over the centuries in terms of how to understand um, traditional religious practices or ways of inhabiting the world and so on. I was wondering if you could talk about how the, how the church itself has evolved in its, its postures toward some of the dynamics that you've described. Um, you, you said at some earlier decades or centuries there's a greater disposition toward hostility or opposition. Um, some of that seems to have been rethought, if I'm correct, after the Second Vatican Council. Maybe you could help uh, explain that a little bit for me. Definitely at uh, the stage, the early stage of evangelization, especially once there was a breakthrough in biology, you know, once uh, in Europe, America, once they had isolated the different bacteria, you got like only one way of looking at sickness. It was like every sickness is through microbes, basically, you know. And the successes they had, it enforced also this kind of kind of belief. And uh, missionaries, priests were also very much trained in this kind of, uh, and, and uh, they were used to this kind of, of uh, way of looking at it. And African ways of looking at illness were marginalized, definitely. By the church, it was primitive, it was pagan, 
it was irrational, and the answer people thought was education. It was thought the more you educate people, they will come by themselves to stop superstitious beliefs and you start getting a rational thought. And that has been for decades the way also of the church, and it did not work. You know, if you do not engage with a belief, you, you put the belief underground and it becomes even more potent. It becomes even more powerful in certain situations. And then when people make use of it, the church is totally absent from it. We are absent from the discernment processes people go through because we are not even part of that language, because we deny its existence. There is no such things, witchcraft, spirits, it's a psychological problem and so on. We deny the existence, but for people it is real. They struggle with it, they see their effects, and they also experience certain things in their lives, which from an outsider uh, we don't experience them. And, and uh, so they go to people who can help them. And then the church, by not engaging with it, has, has been absent from the discernment processes people go through about their spiritual life. And this definitely has changed uh, in the sense that the church already, even before Vatican II, there were many movements, especially when they saw how independent churches attracted people, especially for healing. Um, there was always a genuine interest among many priests in uh, cultural practices, uh, in, in healers, in uh, indigenous churches. Uh, of course, there was also hostility. I don't want to downplay that but that many people had that interest was also there. Of course, it's a gray zone, eh? and uh, especially in church uh, circles, you present a very clear image. This is bad. When you go for healing, you're not allowed to invoke spirits, for example. You're not allowed to invoke your ancestors. You're only allowed to evoke God, and so on. Eh? Uh, um, it's a gray area, but nevertheless, priests, Many have been quite involved in that gray area and, and were also encouraged in a way to do it. It seems also, uh, perhaps in Zambria, but I know certainly elsewhere, that more than just a pragmatic adjustment to the endurance of traditional religions and other expressions, that there's been at least some movement toward a discernment from the, from the Christian perspective about what is of value and what is of God in, in traditions and in ways of understanding creation and so on that are are of value and that are complementary to notions of notions of the gospel. That's a very interesting point because actually the Catholic Church has been at ease with the world religions very much, uh, but not with African traditional religions. Even today there is that kind of marginalization still taking place, even though many realize that there's a lot in to learn and to challenge us. And for me, the greatest thing is the relational aspect. You know, in, in, uh, in Zambia, in many African countries, belonging is extremely important. You are not there as an individual, but to be is to be with, like what has been formulated in Ubuntu, uh, philosophy of Desmond Tutu and many others, but this is very strong. And uh, aspect of witchcraft, of spirits, in the end, if you look, if you break it down, it always comes to relationships. It's a crisis in relationships. And uh, very often the spirits point towards broken relationships. 
Here in the West, religion is a very private thing. Uh, in Africa, it is not. African religion realizes, and I think that we have to learn from this, that we affect each other. What I do with my spiritual life will have effects on you. And that, that this uh, interpersonal dimension is very strong in Africa. And I think that is uh, uh, something which we need to explore much, much more. I'm intrigued by the observation about something perhaps of a an inconsistency, if not a double standard, in how the church historically has situated itself with regard to non-Christian religions of Asia, for example, Hinduism, Buddhism, those that can claim some sort of a, an antiquity and perhaps a, a different posture in how the, the West tells history to itself relative to a rather a greater skepticism about practices or ideas in an African context. Um, and that brings to mind that I think that the, the extent to which ideas or even terms like witchcraft have a history, and the history is very much a political one in the history of the West, that ideas that justified colonialism, ideas that justified notions of cultural or even racial hierarchy made these sort of abstract distinctions between modern and traditional and scientific and rational and irrational and so on. And I wonder to what extent the church historically has had to unlearn some of that itself um, about you know putting some of those putting some of those categories under investigation over the, the, the past several decades. Yeah, it's true that um, the term witchcraft is a political term because uh, from the Western history, witches were killed. In Africa, there are a lot of witch killings. We cannot deny that on grounds of, of witchcraft accusations. People also today are killed. And very often, this can be a political category which legitimizes to take control from people and be ruled by something else, you know. Um, uh, from the church, I must say, though it is true that African religions were not recognized very much officially by the church, um, the church has been trying to listening nevertheless. If I see of what happened in Zambia, many priests had been given the chance to be with healers, mix with healers, invite healers. Some became even healers themselves. And the bishops have always kind of tolerated it in a way, as a way, as a chance to get access to this potency which, which is there. So it is a gray area, and in many ways the church has contributed to the marginalization of African beliefs, but nevertheless there was always also this kind of movement towards it, to learn from it, and also the recognition that we have something to learn from it. I think that, that awareness has been there in Zambia for quite some time, actually. Like we have um, a traditional uh, initiation into what we call the Kuluwamkulu, the Nyao, which is of the Chewa people, a very important uh, mark of identity. Uh, boys get initiated into it, and it is a religion. It's an African religion where people uh, uh, go to the graveyard in view of the ancestors and uh, where people believe that the spirit world interacts with them. You know, this was always condemned by the church. You are not allowed to go there. People were even excommunicated when they went. And even today, some are still excommunicated for 
attending such ceremonies. At the same time, you have uh, priests who got initiated themselves. You have one priest who uh, established a very famous center in Malawi about it, researching it, being one of them being initiated, initiating others being recognized, studying it from within. So you have both elements in the church. On one hand, you, you, uh, you judge and you say, no, this is not comp compatible. On the other hand, you also want to learn. Maybe different people have different func functions and it has been very difficult for the church to deal with it in a, in, in a systematic way, indeed. Yeah. Well, and in a sense, while it's been I'm no, no doubt challenging, it's, it's not a new circumstance. I mean, that's always been the, the dynamic of Christianity engaging in cultures yeah. that have been one step beyond where it, it had been implanted previously, trying to find out what constitutes legitimate enculturation and what constitutes an inappropriate sort of adoption of elements that are really not, not compatible with the best of what Christianity hopes to be. Um, but to be able to see it play out in real time must be absolutely fascinating. You have also like, what is religion? Religion is determined by the hierarchy, by those in power. They say this is proper religion and what people do is magic. You know, magic is like you, you devalue it. You know, it's not like up to standards of, of religion and it is the religious hierarchy who draws the line. But at the same time, who is in the church? You find that the majority of people, they make use of what the hierarchy calls magic especially in times of crisis, it's more, it's more important to them. So in the end, it's also the question, who does draw the line, actually? And, and that there are distinctions between formal and, in, and the institutional aspects of the tradition and those at the, at the popular and pastoral level is, nothing, is nothing, nothing new and nothing even limited to questions about witchcraft or spirituality. Those are... And we need the distinctions. Uh, we need also people to draw a line, even right. if it is very difficult. And people want it also. People want sure. from the church clear answers, even if they don't always follow them. Eh? But it is a very difficult task indeed. It sounds more art than science. <laughs> indeed, in yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, in your own work, in helping the Christian community to understand better the realities of witchcraft, you're you seem to be something both of a pioneer and an innovator. I'm thinking here of your work with the uh, church-based response called Fingers of Thomas that you have been working with um, in dealing with issues of, as your, as your published work says, witchcraft, Satanism, and the like. That, can you talk about that? It seems like it's an attempt to move beyond a sort of, sort of a, 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 a quick sort of judgmental or compartmentalizing, but very, very much cognizant of some of the ambiguities that obtain on all sides here. That's right. Indeed, we wanted to uh, bring a new approach because we were not happy with the dominant approaches which we still find today in Zambia and indeed in many other African countries, you know, to deal with spirits or witchcraft. There's this one approach which just denies it. It doesn't exist. People are just, uh, they have psychological problems. So, but by denying it, I've already said, you marginalize it, but it goes underground. But there's also the other approach which has come up in the last uh, 20, 30 years, 
let me call it the charismatic approach or Pentecostal approach, where people seek through solutions through exorcisms. Again, I'm not happy with it because it's now demonized. Whatever affliction people have, it's something negative, it comes from the devil, it has to be exorcised and you get rid of it. But in my own experience, things are more complicated than just being negative. And very often people who experience witchcraft attacks, very often people who experience spirits, spiritual afflictions, are extraordinary people. For me, they are artists. They have special gifts to express something, to dream something, to experience something which is relevant for others also. And they express things through their bodies when they are in a trance, uh, through their vocabulary when they explain things which everybody is fascinated with. They touch a nerve of their families, of society, and um, just to, to pray that away, to exercise it, we, we, are, missing, we are missing out something. And uh, uh, our approach as the finger of Thomas is like Thomas in the Bible who wanted to gain his own experiences. He wanted to put his finger on the resurrection and see how far can he come to actually touch and see what, what uh, happened with the risen Christ, how far, how it was kind of a bridge from faith and reason kind of to, to make them meet. And uh, this has been very much our approach that when somebody has an affliction, we want to learn from that affliction. We don't want to pray it away. We don't want to cast it out, but we want to see more which nerve it, it, uh, it touches. And very often we find out that uh, it touches something which, which many others are affected by also. For example, we have the panic in Zambia of Satanism. Satanism is very different here from the States, the official Satanism. Satanism is like a word which came from here, but which was adopted in the own African understanding, in Zambian understanding of it. And very often these are young people uh, who feel alienated. And they express, I don't belong to the church, I belong to another world. I belong to Satan, I belong to the devil, I am evil. And they express something which fascinates many others because they also feel alienated. Many people feel alienated from their own families, even from the church, uh, they feel alienated from the school, it doesn't make sense to them and they cannot cope with it. Now when this Satanists now start to speak about the other world, they are fascinated by it. And uh, with this fascination we have to deal with and we have to recognize it. And in this sense, very much I understand people who are afflicted as artists, who have actually a lot to say. And it's a very different approach from the usual one. If somebody has a demon, is possessed, normally we look at them as people with whom there's something wrong. And we marginalize them and uh, we say, well, it's not really real like, like, like that. And I don't believe either in demons in the same way as people believe in them, but I do recognize that these people have a special sensitivity, which I do not have, and that that sensitivity very often points to tensions. Tensions in society, in, in, in the village, in town, even very political tensions which are expressed and that is very very fascinating i'm interested in your comments about some of the more charismatic or or, or pentecostal movements that have been increasingly visible uh, across the region and i'm 
their understanding of this set of questions. On the one hand, you have the sort of dynamic of condemnation at the other, at the same token, at least among some of the prosperity-oriented ministries and so on, there's almost a magical appropriation of sacred objects, the, the person of the pastor, the, the idea about wealth being a, a sign that, you know, you have, you know, you've propitiated at least the pastor's idea of, of God and the transcendent. And it seems a very different kind of an interaction um, than what you're describing as a more adequate kind of a Christian engagement. Can, can you talk a, a little, little bit more about that? Because these seem to be areas of, of Christian expansion in at least some parts of the, uh, of the uh, world. No, def definitely. It's, it's, uh, Africa has been, uh, Christianity has been Pentecostalizing to a great extent in the last 20, even 30 years. Uh, but uh, first of all, I want to start with something very positive which Pentecostal churches have brought to, to Africa and to Christianity, this uh, dra drama. You know, healing is not a matter of uh, some intellectual prayers. In the Catholic Church, we have just a priest and he puts some oil. He says a little prayer which is formulated, which is translated from Latin into local languages. And you have a priest with a book, you know, half, half the eyes in the book and half on the person. Uh, obviously, this is not attractive neither in Africa nor here. Now, Pentecostalism has brought the dimension of the body, you know. When people pray, they can cry, they can stand up, they can fall down, they can be in a trance. And they touch a layer which in the Catholic Church we had great difficulties to touch. And this has to be recognized that the Pentecostal churches brought the drama into, into the worship. Um, Bringing the Holy Spirit back into everyday life in, is a in, gift to in, the whole church. In, in many ways. So um, the approach we, we want to bring is not against this. In fact, this is what we want to safeguard. And nor am I against exorcism. Ourselves and our group, many people come to be prayed over and at a certain stage to ask God to deliver them from these spirits. But after we have done the homework with them, how these spirits poses also to them a challenge. We want that they get in touch with their life vocation. And once they realize their life vocation, and often the spirits, they are the ones who show us people do not live up to their potential yet. And when they are befallen, if we exorcise them, they just go back to where they were yesterday. But we want them to be where, they, where God wants them to be tomorrow. And very often, like, it, it is, it is um, a step of transformation. For us, uh, when we pray over people in our group with the fingers of Thomas, like Thomas himself, he had a transformation of faith. And we want people to grow through their afflictions. We don't want them to go back, to be restored to a previous good life they had without the spirits or without the witchcraft attack. But through the witchcraft attack or spirit attack, we want them to be challenged and to ask themselves the question, what is my vocation in life and which relationships do I need to address, which do I need to heal? And once they have done this homework, let the spirit go. Um, now in Pentecostal churches, the approach uh, which we do not like so much, 
where we want to bring another approach forth is where spirits are prayed away too easily. People come uh, to an overnight prayer with a lot of inner problems and outer problems with the hope once I'm prayed over everything will be fine in my life but without doing any homework themselves. And this kind of exorcism, we want to set another approach to. Particularly when healing doesn't come in those circumstances, it then becomes the fault of the person not having been benefited. Their faith wasn't strong enough, they didn't contribute enough, they didn't, they didn't trust enough, so it's, it's almost an invincible system that keeps, keeps people with struggles in an even more difficult circumstance. Yes, indeed. Uh, even in our own group, you know, the fingers of Thomas, we are very mixed from different backgrounds, different spiritual beliefs. Some believe in spirits, some are more rational and so on. But for example, uh, one of our own members, uh, she expressed it freely with us and so on. Uh, when her life didn't progress, she was prayed over again and again. And in, in the end, she thought, I must have a demon. And that demon was closer to her than God. The fasting didn't work. Uh, some sicknesses, they don't go away by prayer. Though the hope is there, like HIV, AIDS, the hope is there, I will be delivered, I will be healed. And then in, in the, the act of being prayed over, they don't feel pain anymore. They think they are healed. They want to believe they are healed. But two weeks later, reality comes back to them. And then they feel God is very far from them and the demon is very near. And that is the, the shadow side of this kind of exorcism which, which we witness so much nowadays in Africa. As you think back on the 30 years that you spent as, as part of the community in rural settings, urban settings, um, how, what's your own journey been like? How have, you, how have you changed as you kind of take stock of your own story? Um, it's, it's a remarkable privilege and opportunity, I'm sure, to be, to be part of, of the, the types, of, types of things that you've seen and even in the midst of struggles and suffering. I mean, it's an it's entirely different world, I'm guessing, than maybe what you were grown, 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 grown up with. Um, uh, what I have changed or where I feel I have been called to change is the aspect of listening. I realized that when somebody has a spiritual challenge, the best we can do is to listen to them. And with this listening, I have always had problems, difficulties. I'm not a listening person. I, I want to give solutions. I want to give an answer. And that doesn't work. In my ministry, it does not work. And to learn to listen, allow the person to express his or her experience in their own words, with their own beliefs, even if they are witches, even when they are spirits, and to learn something from that experience. It's only through listening that we can actually come near to it, see something of it, and then uh, ourselves we are challenged by this experience. And that definitely I'm called still to learn much more than at the stage I am with. Another thing is that in our group, we are a team. You know, when you are a team, you don't have to do everything yourself. And there are others who listen better than, than, I, than I do, which is, which is uh, very good. It's a great know. gift. Another thing which 
is very challenging in my, my ministry is the violence. You know, on, on the one hand, we listen to beliefs, but I have also to realize that beliefs bring in violence. And maybe many people don't speak enough about it because we don't want to put Africa in, into a certain light of, of, you know, after all the history we are through, all oh, witchcraft and so on. But witchcraft is a topic which brings death and, and people are beaten to death, tortured to death. I know people who are buried alive, who are killed, drowned, anything, and... Um, These are not philosophically abstract questions. These right. are matters of life and These death. These are matters of, of life and death for the affected people, but also for the accused people. And then uh, you don't have always an easy answer because the accused also are often difficult personalities. You know, those where the community says they are witches, they are not the people everybody likes. Also, they themselves believe in, believe in witchcraft. So it's not like as if they would not believe in witchcraft and they, are, they, uh, they may have pointed also towards others. It's, it's all a, a sense of drama. I surely learned that also as a church, our answers are not black and white. We have to go with the drama, but we have to be aware that on both sides there are grave dangers. There's this danger of acknowledging forces too fast, too easily, you can actually contribute to the death of somebody. Um, like when we listen, we have to be careful not to affirm the realities in a sense that, that uh, somebody stands accused. So that's, that's a very, very dangerous part of, of, of uh, which we, we developed a nice way among the fingers of Thomas, which maybe I will describe a bit later. But there's the other danger I have already explained that we just uh, pretend it is not there. It's a very delicate balance. It is a very, have, very delicate you have, balance. You have people who can be victimized and marginalized by being accused, by not, by being, by being the objects of witchcraft. You can, I mean, the, the stakes, the stakes seem to be incredibly high. In our group itself, there are many people who came to the group because they felt afflicted by witchcraft, where they thought the witch is another person. We have many members in our group who, um, who came to the group because they are accused to be witches. Said, I'm not a witch, I'm accused, help me. And there are others, many, who say themselves, me, I'm a Satanist, <laughs> you know. Help me, I don't want to be a Satanist anymore. And you know, you have a, a, a very delicate uh, balance. But uh, as a group, we developed a methodology which is very easy and which guides us. And um, maybe I can briefly introduce it. Basically, we, we look at a, at a new way of sorting out things. It's not about what is true and what is not true, because that doesn't work in this kind of scenarios. It's not even about objective and subjective, because what's subjective to me, I see it as very objective. Um, so we have another way of looking at it. We just look at a narrative and we divide a narrative into what belongs, what we call the inner world and the outer world. Neither of them has to do with truth. We believe that uh, the inner world is an, a true experience, but the outer world, what is different is that it's open. It's a world that I have access to. I can look at facts, I can ask other people, I can ask witnesses about, and this is the outer world. And any public action 
has to be done on facts in the outer world. Here, if you speak about witchcraft, for example, come in threats. There are people who threaten by witchcraft. In Zambia, they would say, you will see. Now, to see is a threat. What will you see? You will see death. You will see that my powers are greater than your powers. And if other people have heard him saying so, we call them, also in the church, we call them, this is outer world, there is a witness. What did you mean by you will see? Do you want that somebody dies in this family? And then very often people back up. Obviously, you have also the very dark stories of what we call ritual crime. It's maybe overrepresented in the media, but it does happen. There's an empirical basis in it that some people are killed for harvesting body parts in the belief that this gives spiritual powers or wealth. This does happen less than, than it is often thought of, but uh, I, there's evidence for it. This is obviously the outer world. If, if somebody is killed, there is uh, a dead body somewhere, you know, and obviously it's a case for the police. But then there are many parts of the narrative which you call the inner world. And the inner world are experiences where people dream, where they have a vision, also a conviction of others. But uh, as long as we cannot enter that world, we deal with it strictly in the inner forum, in the forum of prayer, in which we always put the challenge of growth towards people, to take it as an opportunity to grow into a better person, rather than to regress into who I was yesterday. Um, so that's the work we do in the inner forum, in which we recognize the vocabulary of, of the affected person, deal with it and we try to transform this inner experience. And there we have a great wealth in our group. We have many people who have had themselves very powerful negative experiences with witchcraft, which they could transform. You know, uh, visions, there's a way of dealing with them and it can uh, work sometimes very easily. Maybe I can give an example for children. Sometimes children are used by the adults to point at witches. A child has a dream of the grandmother, a very negative dream. Now the adults always suspected the grandmother and it's for them a proof that the grandmother is a witch. Now how do we work with it? For example, uh, one particular girl, uh, maybe nine or ten years old, I asked the girl to draw her dream. So she drew a picture of a very dark image of her grandmother, very black, huge. So she was very small, the grandmother was dark, and she had the head of a snake. So a very negative picture. And a week later, I asked the same girl to draw another picture how God wants the grandmother to be. And she drew a very nice picture with uh, two people holding hands, full of butterflies, lot of colors and more or less equal heights. And she said, this is how God wants the grandmother to be. And in our prayer with the family, we prayed that, that uh, indeed uh, uh, we help the grandmother to be what God wants her to be, and ourselves also to be whom God wants us to be. And the, the dreams stopped. And in the process, breaking any sort of a chain of, of, of action between concerns or accusations against someone that might lead to yes, actions yes. of violence or retribution. Yes, in this case the grandmother had been already expelled and afterwards we asked the girl and the mother to visit the grandmother with me 
it was at first a very hostile visit, but uh, after some time, it helped them to see the grandmother as a human being because she had also concerns which she aired. And it was good for the family to see the other side of the story. And uh, in our approach, we always try to mend relationships. If I am attacked, if I feel attacked by a witch, I will challenge the person to go to the witch with me, if they want. Uh, and very often I, I went with them and it was at first ice, but just this human encounter brought back a humanness into the other person and uh, no longer just the image of something utterly negative. And we take spiritual attacks always as a call to mend broken relationships, always. And we find there's actually a power in it, a real spiritual power, when you work towards reconciliation, towards mending relationships, just towards a positive thinking towards the other, trying to be in their shoes. There is a power which is transformative for both sides. I could see that, and, and to not pay attention to those concerns, to not take those, those accusations seriously, to, as you say, to sort of let them, you know, to let them go by the wayside or to ignore them, would be to leave those, those narratives uninterrupted, is to leave those, those roles un, unchallenged, and then the kind of the destructiveness of it would seem likely to just perpetuate itself. That's right. So and breaking a cycle. By taking, by taking matters seriously. That, that's right. And they will go to somebody else. If I don't take it seriously, there are enough other people who do take it seriously and who will say, the grandmother is indeed the witch. Tell people what and they want to hear. They, they tell people what they want to hear. And, uh, um, but with this method of leaving things in the, in the inner forum, which belong to the inner world, but to concentrate on... Uh, on destructive behavior. The grandmother, she also had destructive behavior, which we could even challenge. For example, she used a very bad language, which she agreed to. And uh, one of her daughters had committed suicide uh, because of a bad relationship. So many of the negative uh, behavior types, she actually did even agree to, but this is something else than witchcraft. Right. And then you come away from witchcraft and you go actually to something very concrete, very empirical, and you can meet the person on a very different level than on this spiritual level of, of witchcraft, which is very destructive. Toward a more holistic notion of reconciliation yes. Yes. In, a, yes. in whatever the best Christian sense of that might be. Yes. Absolutely. For persons who want more information about your work, um, how do they get in touch with you? This, this seems to be, I, I, I know this is a, these are topics of interest not only to people interested in, you know, particular regions of Africa, people all over the world, it's not a, it's not a question that's going away anytime soon. You know, time and, you know, historical change doesn't obviate some of these enduring questions. So the, the, the desire to, to, to learn more and to observe your own experiences, how would people find you? Um, I wrote them down in a book. Now, I find it very difficult in a short interview to to bring in uh, uh, the complexity because I always feel when when uh, in a short way I go either this side or that side and uh, you may be left with more questions than answers and the book uh, turned out to be as, as actually many pages but I would still encourage people to read it okay. it is full of case studies 
uh, concrete case studies. Uh, some chapters were written by the concerned people themselves, which, which is quite interesting. And also in the book are the contact details, everything is inside. And the title of the book would be? The title is Unseen Worlds, Dealing with Spirits, Witchcraft and Satanism. Well, to the extent that we've given people a taste of what might be, what might be on offer there and in the rest of your ministry, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mike. <laughs>